Welcome to another episode of the Utah Geospatial Podcast. This is Greg Bunce. And I'm Matt Peters. And we're from the Utah Geospatial Resource Center. And this podcast will be bringing you geospatial news from across Utah. Today on the podcast, we talk with Aaron Austin from DNR's Division of Water Resources. Aaron talks to us about how his agency went from clipboards in the field to now the reliance on satellite data. He also talks about how collaboration helped them build one of their most used layers, the water supplier boundary. We talk about their involvement in secondary water metering and also a bit on the water budget for the Great Salt Lake and what that means. This episode is the first in a three-part series that we're doing on water here in Utah. So keep an eye out for our next episode where we talk with Lee Eschler from DNR's Water Rights Division. But for now, let's get on with the show. So welcome to the UGRC podcast again. Uh, today we have Aaron Austin, and Aaron is with uh, the Division of Water Resources within Natural Resources, the Department of Natural Resources, and there's seven divisions there, and uh, Aaron's division is one of those. And I must admit, Aaron, you know, for many years, I remember you and I remember another colleague, Barbara Perry, who's since uh, long retired. And I was always kind of intrigued by what you guys did. And then, you know, I've seen you over the years and, and then you do the lunches at the City Creek Mall. And then also I noticed that big fat chunk of change you got your your whole organization received for house bill 429 so i'm, I'm glad we finally can can sit and chat for a little bit now and uh maybe just as a start you know kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of i guess for me the, the first thing i knew you for was water related land use and i know that you guys do more than that but Maybe you can just kind of introduce yourself and start us off about what what your office does. Yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Excited to, to chat with you guys and and be a part of this. I I guess I'll tell you about just a little bit how I got into to GIS and and yeah, the water related land use is kind of a big part of my story and my life. Um, I worked for Water Resources right out of high school as an intern. And uh, it was kind of just this fun thing I got pulled into. They needed someone to go drive. And and I went out on their field crews. And this is back in the day when they had uh, gigantic clipboards in the vehicle and a full-size quad map that they were marking while they drove around. So it was it was a different time. The people would wear the sweats, sweats on the bottom to take care of the air conditioning and tank tops on top to to be out in the sun because they had this big clipboard that had cut them in half if we got in an accident. So that was that was my first exposure to to working for water resources and and water related land use. I did a little bit of uh, digitizing on the old digitizing tables where we we'd place those uh, quad maps there and and get them entered into the digital system. But fast forward a couple of years later, I was in college, trying to do a a degree in business, 
and uh, that old job that I had came open again. So I went back to Water Resources and and worked there part time all through college, and and worked with that water related land use during that time as well. And then when I graduated uh, with a degree in business, all the jobs that were available were sales jobs, and uh, that wasn't really something that interested me too much. And um, at the exact same time, one of the GIS analysts for Water Resources quit. And uh, I'd gotten to know Eric Edgley, and we had a good working relationship. And I found that I kind of had an interest in, in what they were doing. And, and I walked into his office and told him I wanted that job. So um, that led to six months of on-the-job training and and the beginning of a career in GIS. So I went on to do water-related land use for another 12 years, I think, after that. So. Wow, I am just, I am just, I don't even know what you'd call it, flabbergasted, <clears throat> amazed that yes, right out of high school, and and I do remember days of of quad maps, clipboards, uh, things of that nature. Wow, I had no, I had no clue of your history. Yeah. <laughs> Was the whole clipboard and, and driving around in trucks was that basically the ground the, the days of ground observation for for land use before the satellites kicked in? Is that what you folks are doing out there? Oh yeah, yeah, we've got a a long uh, interesting history to that program. And actually, I'll throw in there as well that um, my dad worked for Water Resources and he actually started the program. So uh, way before I was involved. He took a group of people down to California to see how they were collecting agricultural data and water, you know, water use on agriculture and came back and started a program. So <clears throat> back in that day, you know, the ground truth, uh, even before we, we could do it on the digitizing table, they would, they would do those maps and then they would cut the papers out and weigh them to calculate the acreage. So <laughs> it's, it's got an interesting, weird history. And, uh, when I when I came back to Water Resources, um, that's when Eric Edgley was kicking off some of the tablets in the field, and and uh, so we were taking ArcView out into the field, and and digitizing and gathering um, that way finally. But yeah, um, I've done presentations at UJIC and things like that about the history of the program. Uh, Tom Moore has developed a nice uh, story map about. Water-related land use and and uh, like I said, it's you know more than a decade of my career. I, I like to talk about it, like to think about the intricacies of it. But but as you mentioned, now we uh, we actually used to spend a long time during the summer getting that ground truthing and try to do a full survey, and that took us about six years to do the whole state. Uh, now we're we're functioning off of the cropland data layer from the USDA, and we do more of spot checks now, spend a few weeks during the summer doing that. And we actually push our data to the USDA to inform their models and and uh, improve that layer. So so now we have much more uh, sophisticated and up-to-date ways to do it, which allows us to produce a yearly product. So that's come a long ways in, in the years. So these are involved. Currently now you're, so these are Landsat satellites that are using remote sensing and stuff. Um, 
how does that, so going back again, I don't, you know, just curious about the clipboard days, like how, how did it work back then? Just a, briefly. Yeah. So um, we pay the division paid for aerial flights. Uh, they would take those slides and they built a little box with a mirror and a piece of glass and they would set up a slide projector that, that shot it in for this setup and projected the aerial photos onto the quads. And then they, someone would sit there and trace that boundary information onto the quads. So uh, yeah, we were paying for our own flights. We were hand tracing things onto quads and it was in a, you know, in ingenious way to handle it, but you know, we've come a long way. Yeah, and I love the part where you're cutting it out and then stacking them on top of each other and then weighing it to, to kind of get that, that, that acreage there. That, that's great. So the satellites, so right now then, just to clarify, so it is essentially satellites that are continuous, continuously operating, and then this is coming down through the USDA, um, and then you're just building out the layers based on that. Yeah, so um, the Coughlin data layer, I think, is really heavily a Landsat based product but the the reason they can do something that a lot of other people can't is because uh, they're a sister agency to the farm service agency so they actually have training data sets that are agricultural information gathered from farmers that no one else can have so um so they train their data sets and use the satellite information um to produce that raster layer of of crops and then, uh, like I said, they, I mean, they use other inputs and other things, and we're now an input to that by, by doing our field checks. But, um, yeah, I mean, in, in back east or in, or in areas where the, there's a lot of expansive cropland or where there's, uh, you know, very well-known crops, very common crops, they have a very high, you know, confidence level in, in what they're <laughs> seeing on the ground. Um, with those satellites and then and then we often try to, to go out and visit things that are a little more unusual or or that don't have as high a confidence level um, with their their methods so that we can be feeding data in that improves you know if there's vegetable vegetable patches and orchards and and you know uh, pastures are actually kind of hard they're not like such a uniform crop like other things so we're just melding together a few different things how about, um, I'm looking at Salt Lake County right now on the, the Utah water-related land use map, the current one, and it is really an incredible map. Um, and I'm looking at the Salt Lake County area, and there's a lot of information here on crop types, and particularly I see grapes, and it says four. Is that is that acreage? Is that percentage? What does that represent? I'm not sure exactly what you're looking at, but but we definitely, you know, we're we're collecting you know the the bounds of the of the field so we know how big it is we've got the crop type uh we've got irrigation types um and we're also you know as we're going through and digitizing what we're seeing in in kind of nape imagery and things like that we're picking out you know urban lands and, and other things so um i don't know what the four refers to but i we've collected whether you've got you know grapes growing or or whatever and and so it's yeah it's been um something that we collected because there wasn't something there to tell us what agriculture was being grown and then we've 
just always kind of shared that. That's, you know, Matt mentions remembering me for that. And it's, it's something we did early on that I'm proud of that we were very transparent and, and shared that layer as much as we could. And people have used it for a lot of things. You know, you, you can learn a lot about uh, uh, wildlife, you know, they, they sometimes use agriculture as, as food and cover and, and different things. And so, you know, if you're trying to study different things around the state, sometimes the agricultural layer is, is very useful actually. So um, we've done some work to try to understand how it's being used, but for the most part, it's been so, so much freely available that we often go into meetings and someone will say, well, there's this, this great layer here, you know, and, and we've never even heard that they're using it in that way. So um, always kind of fun. Yeah, you know, something that just pops up at, right away as I look at it. You see a lot of the urban areas are red, which is, you know, the, the, the land use is uh, urban. And then some of the rural areas, many of them are green, which is agriculture. However, you see Park City and Moab, which are you know, typically kind of rural areas. However, they have a lot of urban um, land use scattered around. So that's almost like an indicator to me of uh, just resort towns or tourism. Yeah, we we're we're very generalized on the urban stuff. Um, you know, I don't know things like a ski resort or a golf course or you know different things could fall into that. We um, in the early days, for some reason, they were you know marking out things like this is residential, this is commercial, this is industrial, and and at some point in the process, I just said, look, people are starting to try to use this for like you know an understanding of how much land is industrial and, and residential in the state. And I was like, we're not doing a good job of, of making sure we've categorized that correctly. And so we better stop sharing that kind of information if we haven't done a good job of, of informing the data set with it. So, so we kind of pulled that back and just made a lot of things kind of generalized urban, but um, yeah, it's, it's still, you know, if we're updating it, it's kind of showing the change from agriculture to, to urban, or it's showing, you know, the sprawl or the growth. And so people still do use, use it in a lot of ways, but we're not, we're not giving it a bunch of attributes that aren't, you know, actually being determined by us. <laughs> wow. How, how many people work with you on this issue? <clears throat> so, um, you know, back in back in those days that we were doing the state in six years, and we were doing it for months during the summer. Um, you know, we would we would enlist some of the engineers and our our whole team of uh, tech services, and you might have I don't know six to ten people do do travel and work during the the summer. Um, and now with with uh, some of this automation and the and the uh, spot checking, um, you know, we can we can easily get away with maybe four or five people being involved over the year. And and uh, Tom Moore, that's leading the program now, I mean, in some ways, like he's doing most of it himself because he's he's utilizing some machine learning and uh, and different things that just speed up the process. It, it, it's it's fast now partly because of so much work that went into it in the past. You know, we've we've gotten the line work and the data to a place where it needs minor minor additions, minor updates um, over time. And, you know, you can sit there and work with it and 
and have kind of one person spending a good portion of their year instead of, you know, 10 or, or more people spending a long portion digitizing and then a long portion in the field. So um, we did some uh, work with Wade Cluse to categorize some return on investment. We got a poster that we did and, and really, you know, that many fewer people staying in hotels and driving vehicles and spending time was, um, I think we had to give a more conservative ROI because the initial calculations were, I don't think anyone would believe, but it's just, it's been a big um, process improvement and, and even better, more frequent data. So it's been fun to see it evolve. And, and so what you got like half a dozen GIS people and, and a few other staff for this part? So we have, like I say, one person that's main work is the water-related land use. Um, yes. Um, we, we actually have a pretty big crew of GIS people for, for as small as our division is. Um, we've got, you know, 45 to 50 people at, at Water Resources, and um, there's like six of us that have, have a GIS title, and uh, one of our people is a CAD person. But, but yeah, when I when I talk to other departments or divisions where, you know, they've got like 300 people on one GIS personally. I feel pretty lucky, so. Yeah. I noticed you have a, a water group as well on the website, and I'm kind of looking through um, some of the notes from this group as they meet. And one of the, one of the recent things that came up is a secondary water system boundaries. Um, is that something you guys are working on or is that something you have already in-house? Yeah, so um, so the stuff with the water data users group has kind of been in flux. I, I became the manager about four years ago of my section and um, I don't think we've had an official meeting since then. I still kind of have that as a, as an email list, but it's kind of, it's kind of been a little bit of an evolution. We, um, we started that group in the early days because, well, one, I, I mean, I thought it was pretty awesome going to, to slug meetings or UGIC stuff or, or state GIS meetings. And, and sometimes I thought, you know, I need a venue where I can discuss some of the water stuff, <laughs> you know, with, with the data experts. So I, I pulled together uh, a group of people and, and held some uh, meetings where people could present and just kind of followed the format of some of those other user groups. And what it led to most significantly was uh, collaboration that uh, happened between water resources, water rights, uh, water quality, it might've been drinking water actually, and, uh, and some people at the university that, oh, and also uh, the AGRC at the time, the, everyone was kind of making their own water supplier boundaries. And uh, we just said, hey, let's all get together and talk and figure out how we can just make one of these layers and, and make it official and have, everything that everyone needs in it. And uh, and we we volunteered to kind of be the stewards of that layer. Uh, Adam Clark has done that for a lot of years and, and works on that. But that was awesome collaboration and, and a very, very useful layer that came out of it. And, you know, um, we're now in a stage where people have made great use of that layer and now they want to something similar for the secondary 
water, all the, the landscape watering that's happening in the state. And uh, so building, building off of the, the team we built to, to do that, we're, we're working with uh, water rights and, and uh, actually, so uh, Matt thinks our uh, $5 million thing was, was a big deal. We got uh, $250 million for secondary water metering. So uh, within that, we were we had some money to to hire a new GIS analyst and and task him full time. His name is Jack Heinzman, and he's the he's kind of our full time secondary water metering GIS person now. So he's pulling that together, uh, working with Water Rights, working with Adam Clark, and uh, and really that's interesting. But you find out that we don't really know where all these entities are. Or who they are, you know, it's not just their boundary that we don't have. We kind of have to find them for sure to begin with, and, yeah. and comply with the law and, and get this money spent and get the get those meters out there and installed. So, it's was the was the two hundred fifty million? Is that part of ARPA funds, or and, and is that separate from the the HB uh, four twenty nine bill with the five million? For those two separate things? Yep, um, I think I think the first fifty million might not have been ARPA. Um, I think it's House Bill 242, something like that. And so 200 million, I think, is ARPA, which means we've got to spend it fast, get it contracted quick, those kind of things. Um, and yeah, it's, it's totally separate from uh, House Bill 429 on the Great Salt Lake. So I'm actually um, working closely with that. It's what, been one of the nice things about uh, where my GIS career is, is gone is I've Feel like I get to be heavily involved in in water topics as well, not just the, the GIS. So um, I'm assisting in our division on the effort to to contract for for that uh, watershed assessment, and um, the the bill is broken out in a few different ways. But we've we've got to develop a work plan first, and and we're getting close to having that contract finalized, and um, and from there it's just going to be this really big effort to bring all the players together and to figure out uh, where the gaps are in, in our understanding of of how water gets to the lake. And, um, you know, Matt Matt reached out to me and, and really, maybe I should have been more thinking this way, but he gave me a good reminder that, you know, hey, where, you know, where's the gaps going to be in, in the GIS layers and, and data and and definitely a, part, a portion of this could probably help fill those gaps. So we're we're going to be doing lots of collaboration, bringing holder, bringing together stakeholders, and and figuring out what pieces we're missing to really understand how to keep the lake healthy. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's a real challenge you know not not necessarily a money challenge at all but it's i feel it's a challenge to take such a complex ecosystem and figure out what data can support it but not only what data can support it but what data is actually needed that's practical and actionable and you know that we can actually say yes if we have this data we can make this decision uh yeah it's, i think that's going to be a challenge yep yeah for sure
you guys, how does your office play into the NHD? Um, and, and are you, how does the, um, more or less the 3DEP and the 3DHP, how does that affect the work that you folks do? Yeah, so um, that's an interesting story too. Um, you know, we we as a water agency, we're, uh, we're watching you guys up there kind of always pleading for some help with this NHD stuff. And uh, I guess we we took pity on on you guys on Rick up there, and and we said, you know, maybe maybe it makes sense for us to be the steward here. And uh, I had an employee at the time, Jesse Pearson, was really interested in it, and um, we we tried to take it on and get it started. Um, both Jesse and and Adam Clark spent some time trying to get trained in their functions, and uh, we kind of hit a lot of roadblocks, like. You know they were they were having us uh, roll back our versions of Arc ArcMap to older versions because their system was <laughs> was uh, kind of archaic and um, and then just you know time time crunch we we didn't get to spend a lot of time on it and kind of felt bad about that but there's there's kind of a new development that I just went to a meeting about that uh, I guess takes a little bit of the pressure off us but um, they recently they they did all their uh, three depth their you know high accuracy elevation model stuff and what they've found is that now that they have that uh none of the nhd line work really matches the high resolution elevation stuff so um they had both the problem of you know states like ours who were not uh, being very active with the stewardship and updating all the line work but then everyone who was even doing that, even what they'd done and the work they'd done, couldn't match the high-resolution image and and elevation stuff. So they uh, announced that they're moving to uh, what they're calling three three D HP, and uh, and they're going to to uh, delineate those stream networks from the high-resolution elevation stuff. Which is which is how it should work in hydrologic modeling, right? You you want your your streams to flow where the where the elevation dictates that it will, and from there they'll have a much more consistent uh, data set across the whole country because it matches their um, their elevation data and it doesn't you know depend on each state having as good a program as the next. So it's it should be a great improvement. It's going to be really Really great stuff, and we're kind of uh, Jesse's moved on from us. She's over at uh, Utah Geological Survey now, and um, I got a new new people hired on that that can maybe keep an eye on this, and and we can still be involved. But so we didn't do a whole lot with it, but it's it's moving beyond where where we would have had it anyway. So that's great. Yeah, yeah, and and I know we kind of talked about if we if we all had money what would we do and and you talked about how some layers you would work on would would be a water budget layer and a bathymetry layer for the great salt lake what did you mean by the water budget yeah so we've got a, a program here a, a model um by our hydrology team that that tries to gather in all the the water information for the state and kind of create a, a picture of the water supply and the water use and the water transfers and um, 
it's just a massive, massive project. Um, and we, on the GIS side of it, and with our open data site, uh, we're at the end of it where we're like, okay, when you've produced the data, let's, you know, let's build that into products. Let's share that. Let's make it uh, even more public and useful. And uh, I think on both sides of it, you know, we could just, we could use a lot of help with developing the data and then developing ways to share it. So um, some of that might come with the, the $5 million that's being spent on the Great Salt Lake, because part of that is um, a water budget for the lake. And uh, and so we're we're right in there with that. Uh, that that could go a long ways. And then um, I think Great Salt Lake bathymetry is something that that might come out of that. But I've I've also heard I think it's the Utah Geological Survey. Uh, they've they've formulated a budget request for this go around that that would maybe get money to do uh, an update to Great Salt Lake bathymetry as well. So that's just something that. So if we want to understand the lake and how it's um, interacting with all these different factors and we want to model it correctly, um, we're just really functioning on, on bathymetry data that isn't very precise or, or current. So that would be a great one to have. Yeah, yeah, it will be. No question there. Yeah. office um, is one of the groups within the state who contribute to the, the state geographic information database that we have, the SGID that UGRC hosts, and um, you folks have a few layers in there. Are there any layers that you can think of, Aaron, that we should be serving um, through that portal to that we are not? Yeah, so, um, so this new guy I mentioned, Jack, he's, he's uh, going to continue to be working on our secondary uh, water supplier boundaries. And um, I don't know that that one's officially in there yet. So so that's one that uh, we'll be pushing up. But I think, um, like I say, we, we've kind of got this long history starting with water-related land use where, where we were very willing to share and, and push things up. And so um, we, we have quite a few layers that are shared. We, we take advantage of kind of that open data platform. So um, we'll put our layers in open data, and then there's a way that we can just basically, I think, check a box and it says, hey, this needs to also be in the in the open data version of the SGID. Um, and, you know, we've got some of the official layers that have a, an explanatory page and different things like that. But, yeah, we've, I think we do a pretty good job of, of getting our official layers over to you guys and, and available for, for use around the state. Yeah, and, and we really, really appreciate that. And it kind of brings a couple other things to mind while we're here is that uh, I think we should uh, try to collaborate more on some of your uh, machine learning efforts. We have some machine learning efforts at UGRC that I think uh, Tom and, and Eric of UGRC could work together on. And then uh, as well, you know, I think that... Uh, just to put a plug in, even though I, I don't attend very frequently, but your City Creek lunches, I think, are a great place for folks to connect and kind of understand, kind of find the synergy between groups 
and uh, things that may need to happen. And we're, I think that lunch just kind of greases the skids of that. Uh, I think it's a great thing that you started. Uh, but there was one thing I noticed. You have a CAD user uh, in your area, not not CAD like 911 CAD, but CAD like drafting. And, you know, we we do make some of our imagery available to CAD users and things of that sort. But I'm wondering if there's any fundamental changes we need to make to the way we produce or export data for CAD users. Does your CAD person ever tell you anything? Yeah, so uh, Carmen McDonald is, is our CAD technician and she's, um, she's actually for a few years been more involved with the audiovisual department stuff for, for the department here. Um, and, and part of that was because we had a big project that uh, that overtook our whole design and construction section and and a lot of the CAD work kind of dried up, but um, she's still involved and interesting and interested in doing it. We're we've got um, it's a CAD term, so now I'm going to get things wrong. I think there's a, a 3D analyst or something. Um, totally blanking on it, but um, I've worked with her recently. Um, those kind of things are interfacing with Esri. And um, so we have the ability to go in there and connect up to the to the servers and and pull in, you know, base maps and data. So um, we just worked on that recently. So I think there's good support there. Um, I don't know if that, you know, the different UGIC conferences or if, or if there's something that UGRC could do to kind of um, make sure there's some support and good information on how to how to link up some of the CAD softwares to to these databases or or to do that work. But um, I don't know, and I don't know if it's the same for for other people around the state that are that are doing CAD work. If it's um, for us, it's it's been a little sparse, but that might not be true of of other people doing doing CAD. So um, there could could definitely be kind of an underserved population there. If, of people that are kind of like doing GIS, but um, but not always maybe tuned in to all the, the offerings and, and availability of things on the GIS side of things. So, yeah, you just raised my awareness, and I think I just need to keep that in my mind as I speak to folks. Like like probably you dot probably has a lot of CAD users too, and yeah, uh, yeah it's just another group. We just need to make sure they know data is available. And this is how you connect to the databases to, to get the, the data. Yeah. Well, Aaron, I definitely would encourage our listeners to check out uh, a couple of resources that you've shared with us, particularly the, the water-related land use map, um, even the historical ones, and the 2020 water use data app. Uh, also, definitely a plug-in to you guys um, with the story map that you put out there, which is an excellent story map. Is there any other resources that you'd want folks to hear about, or is there an entry point that folks can come into, um, or is it just a Google search? And, and I'll also put these links um, in the notes for the show. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think kind of everything you just mentioned 
um, it's all housed within what we call our open water data website. And uh, you can kind of get the entry point to that by going to water.utah.gov slash open data. So um, yeah, that's just a jumping off point where you can uh, look at the water budget stuff that was mentioned, uh, water related land use. We've got some other pages on that, that uh, we've got a gallery of our maps. We've got um, other places you can go for water information. So um, that's an Esri hub site. Uh, it was called open data when I built it and then it's, it's grown and other people have worked on it a lot since. Uh, David Gunther works on it now, but we, yeah, we've kind of rolling everything up into there and um, it's just a great resource and you know, like you mentioned, we're just able to embed the different apps. We're able to, to work with open data download interfaces. We've got story maps. We've got, it's kind of like a little web website builder and, uh, but it's just kind of GIS centric. So it's a great, great resource. Great thing people can check out. Yeah, it's very well organized and very well done. Um, well, thank you for giving us the time today and just filling us in on what's happening over there. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been fun. It sounds like I need to put another City Creek lunch on the calendar, and uh, it sounds like Matt's com committed to be there, right? <laughs> sounds like it. Well, thanks for tuning into the show today. I hope it was informative. Um, and as always, if you have any questions or if you have any ideas for future shows, please reach out to Matt and I. Currently, we're in the works of uh, coming up with the next episode, so stay tuned. Thanks again for listening. Remember, location matters. <laughs>